If you have your Bible with you, open to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4. Last week, we saw in chapter 3 that Abner, who was the head in charge of the army of Israel underneath of Ishbosheth, he was kind of Ishbosheth's main guy, Ishbosheth, and all these names are going to get crazy, but I want to kind of keep it in order for you. Ishbosheth was Saul's son. Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. Abner was, Saul, was the captain over Saul's army. Abner promoted Ishbosheth the king. He kind of propped him up and put him in the position. And last week we saw Ishbosheth come to Abner and say, hey, why are you going into my father's concubine? That upset Abner, and Abner decided he was going to go join forces with David. So he sent word to David. Uh, David uh, said, fine, we'll join forces, we'll accept you. But the problem with Joab, who was David's guard, had a beef against Abner because Abner had killed Joab's brother previously at battle. So although Abner was at peace with, King, with David, uh, Joab then took Abner's life, and we saw that take place last week. And what that's going to do is what's taken place is the nation of Israel, if you will, they're split right now. The tribe of Judah is underneath David. All the other tribes are underneath um, Ishbosheth. They were Saul was their king. It, Saul passed away in battle. Ishbosheth was promoted to king by Abner. So all the other tribes, all the other eleven tribes, are underneath Ishbosheth. Uh, the problem is now Abner's dead. Okay, so now that Abner's dead, Abner was the main guy that was putting up Ishbosheth. He was the he was kind of the, the the he he was the one that was in touch with the people. He was the one that propped him up as king, if you will. So when we pick up in chapter four in verse one, let's take a look at what happens. When Saul's son, that's Ishbosheth, that's who I just talked about. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Benah, and the name of the other was Rechab. The sons of Ramon, the son of Berathite, of the children of Benjamin, for the Bereth also was a part of Benjamin. Because the Berathites fled to Gideon and and have been sojourners there until this day. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who, who was lame in his feet. He, had five, he was five years old when the news uh, about Saul and Jonathan had come from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up, and he fled, and it happened as he made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. These names will drive you crazy, won't they? All right, take a look at chapter 4, verse 1. When Saul's son... That's Ishbosheth, not Mephibosheth. Ishbosheth heard that Abner had died in Hebron. It says he lost heart. He lost heart, and all of Israel was troubled. What does it mean when somebody loses heart? What does it mean? It means they've lost hope. They've lost, they, 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 they don't understand where, where does life go from here? What's going to take place from here? It means that there's no way for me to achieve the desires of my heart. So when somebody, when, when you come across something in the scripture, when you see somebody that's depressed, you know, for a long term, when you see these things going on, what they've essentially done is they've lost heart. Their heart has a desire, that desire, and, and when they look at their life, they think there's no way for me to achieve that. It's impossible for me to achieve what I would like to see happen in my life, therefore, I've lost heart. The problem with that in our lives is what kind of things does our heart long for? What are the things as human beings that want to, you know, if as human beings we can lose heart, what are the things that we're being pushed toward? What are the things that we're being drawn toward? Where is your heart leading you, so to speak? Oftentimes, it has to do with relationships. I wish, if I had a boyfriend or a girlfriend or if I had a husband or if I had a wife, then things would be much better. 
Ask somebody who's married if that's true. Because they'll tell you being married is hard. Just no, not saying being single is not hard, but being married can be difficult as well. Sometimes it can be, for, for, especially for ladies, if I had a child, if I could just only have a child, then my life would be so much better. Or sometimes it can be, well, if I just had enough money, I'm, I have financial problems, I have all these things, and, and I, I, if I could just get enough wealth to pay off this and buy this and then that, then I would find some happiness in, in these things. Then my life would be much better. Or, or perhaps it's something like success. I want power. I want to climb the corporate ladder. I want to achieve something. I want, to, I want to reach my goal. I want to get to the pinnacle. I want to reach the top of my profession. I want everybody to look up to me. I want, I want all that. You see, those are the places that our heart, just a few, there's other places as well, but those are the places that our heart will lead us to. When we lose hope, we've lost the ability to achieve those things. Okay? So if I look at my life and say that my heart is leading me towards success and I want to climb a corporate ladder and I want to achieve something and all of a sudden I get fired, what happens? My ability to achieve that has just been diminished. So in a sense, I've, I've lost heart. Now, here's the problem with this. When I or you lose heart to something, when our heart draws us to something, we then have to rely on our own ability to achieve that, don't we? If I want to achieve a corporate success or I want to find a relationship or if I want to go in this direction in life or I want to do that, I then begin to rely on my own ability to do that and that becomes a problem for the Christian life. You see, in this case, Ishbosheth, he was wanted to be the king over all Israel, but now he's relying on a man that has made him king over Israel, who was Abner. Abner is now dead, so Ishbosheth loses heart. You follow me? He's, he's, Ishbosheth says, I want to be king. I want to be powerful. I want to be ruler. Abner made me that. All of a sudden, Abner's gone. He lost heart. So what is he? He's depressed because he can't see any way for him to re receive what his heart wants him to receive. So therefore, he's lost heart, and we're going to see that he's just going to go to bed. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna crawl under the covers. He's going he's gonna to kind of hide himself. He's lost heart. Here's the problem with that. When our heart leads us in a direction for something, we think that we're going to find fulfillment in the direction that our heart's leading us, but we're really not going to find fulfillment. Because what will happen is if your heart leads you to climb that corporate ladder when you get to the top, what do you do? If your heart leads you to a relationship and finally you find the guy or you find the woman and you get married and you go home and you realize he's not perfect and she's not perfect and there's all these problems. But I thought if I had a relationship, if I had a husband or wife, then things would be great. You see, if you're relying on your own heart, you say, I don't know, can I change this? You begin to try to do this work in your own. And, but the problem is, here's the problem. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, the Bible tells us. The heart is deceitfully wicked. So your heart will lead you to what, you, what it thinks or what you think will make you joyful, what will make you happy, what will make you fulfilled, but it's really not going to last, is it? It's kind of like getting a new car. You go buy a new car, you go, you go car shopping, you sit on the lot and you get in the new car. New car smell. You know, you get that new car smell. Man, I'm going to keep this car nice forever. This car is going to be clean. I'm going to wash it every week. What happens about two, three years into it? Somebody says, I scratched your car. Ah, who cares? Just another one on the car. You know, it, it, what, what you thought was bringing you joy and what you thought was bringing you happiness, it was only temporary. Now you've got to go buy another new car to get that happiness, and it works that way with everything. So the problem is you really don't know what's going to make you fulfilled. Follow me on this. Ishbosheth has lost heart. Because he thought he would find fulfillment in being king over Israel. 
Now because the guy that he's relying on to do that is gone, he feels there's no way for him to physically be able to do that any longer, so he's losing heart. We've all chased our heart for something, and we've all thought, when I get this thing, that'll be the thing that I want. And then we've all found ourselves in a position that we lose heart that we find ourselves down, we find ourselves run over, we find ourselves lacking. You know, here's what I want you to understand. If you want fulfillment, if you want to really find joy in your life, if you really want to find those things, Psalm 37, 4 says this, delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, God knows what our heart needs more than we know what our heart needs if you follow your heart you'll be pulled astray you'll be pulled aside the lord knows what you desire more than you do he knows what will make you fulfilled he knows what will make you happy he knows what will make you joyful he has the perfect mate in store for you he has the perfect job in store for you he has the perfect career in store for you he has the perfect plan in store for you he created you for a very purpose that when you fulfill his purpose you will find all that you're looking for in happiness and joy and fulfillment, and you won't find it anywhere else. Some people have said there's a God-shaped hole in your heart, and only God can fill it. And that's certainly true. But here's the problem. Here's what I want you to notice. Ishbosheth, he's putting his hope in one person. When the one person is gone, he finds himself wiped out. He finds himself lost. He finds himself destroyed. As a matter of fact, we read there in verse 1, all Israel was troubled. They're worried sick. You ever lost heart? Sure you have. We're human. You ever been worried about stuff? Sure you have. But I want to show you something. Listen. Saul, it says Saul had two sons. or Saul, Saul, Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Banah. The name of the other was Rechab. And they, they're the sons here, and it tells you, and then we read a little bit farther down in verse 4, that Jonathan had a son also, and this is kind of thrown in there. We're not going to do much with it tonight. We'll, we'll pick it up farther on in the book when we get there. But Jonathan had a son who was lame after Jonathan and Saul's death. His, his, uh, um, his, his uh, maidservant picked him up, and he fell, and he got hurt. And his name is Mephibosheth, and he'll come to play a little bit later. But look down at verse 5 with me. Then the sons of Ramon, the Barathite, Rechab and Benah, set the day set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Benah, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head and were all night escaping through the plain you got to love the Old Testament. They put it to you kind of bluntly, don't they? They came in, they killed him. This is the king of Israel, Ishbosheth. Where were the guards? What was he doing in bed in the middle of the day? Some commentators would suggest that it was nap time, that in that culture they took an afternoon nap, and that's certainly a possibility. Or, or do you think that he's lost heart so bad, he's depressed, he does what? He goes to bed. What do you do when you get depressed? What do you do when you lose heart in something? What do you do when, when you find yourself down? Do you ever get to the point where you just want to crawl under the covers and I just don't want to get up today? I just don't want to get out of bed today. I just, I, I just want to stay here today because it's safe and I just don't want, I think that's where he was. 
I think he was at the point where he was just depressed. I think he, he'd placed all of his hope in his desire of being king, and now the man that all of his hope was in this man, Abner. Abner's dead, and he realizes there's no more hope. I can't achieve what I want in my own strength, so now he is completely, well, he's completely dead. But he couldn't do it. He's laying in bed. There's no guards around. And then it says in verse 8, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life, and the Lord has avenged my Lord from the king of Saul this day. But David, now, here's what I want us to focus on. These two men, they at one point were aligned with Ishbosheth. They were heads, they were heads in his army. And now they just killed him. They just turned against him and they killed him. And they come over to David's side and they bring his head. And that was common in that culture. David carried the head of Goliath for a while. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. At least in this culture. It still may happen other places. But I'm glad we're not doing that. So they come over to David and they say, look, we've got something for you. Look, we've got the head of your enemy. We've got the head. Now, do you see their plan? They're trying to make themselves look good before David, aren't they? Who are they thinking about? Do you think they're thinking about David? Look, we're, we're serving you. No, their motivation is selfish, isn't it? What are they trying to get out of it? They want David to go. They, they realize life's crumbling around them because now that Abner's dead, Ishbosheth isn't going to be on the throne long. David is the new guy that's coming up and everybody's following him. So we need to do something to make ourselves look good for him. So we'll just kill who we think is his enemy. We'll bring him to the head and, and David will certainly promote us to, to head, of his, head in his army, right? So their focus was on, on themselves. It was all about themselves. It was all about what can I get out of it? What can I do? What, you know, what, what am I going to get out of this? Here's our catch with it. We said earlier that he had, Abner had, uh, Saul's son Ishbosheth had lost heart and all of Israel was troubled. He lost heart because his focus was on man. He was a servant of man. Ab Ishbosheth was a servant of man of Abner. He was essentially, he might have been king, but he was a servant of Abner. We as Christians are not called to be servants of men, we're called to be servants of God. A servant of man versus a servant of God. A servant of God is a person who is willing and waiting to be directed by the Lord. You see, as a servant of God, I don't have to worry about what's going on around me. I need to focus on what does God want me to do? What has God called me to do? What, what direction has God given me in my life? Where, where, does he, where do I need to focus? A servant of God is a person who is willing and waiting to be directed by his or her master, God. A servant of God understands that God is the one in charge, that he's the master, and that he's capable of accomplishing anything. A servant of God understands that God always has my best interest at heart. So when God says, no, don't do something, I'm okay with that because I know that he has my best interest. A servant of God always understands that it's my, my job description is to be obedient to God. What does a good servant do? Obeys. It's real simple, right? A good servant doesn't have to come up with things to do. A good servant just does what his master tells him to do. As a servant of God, my focus, my focus is on God. I let God be the one that promotes me. I let God be the one that directs me. I let God be the one that guides me. The reason that, that Ishbosheth has lost heart because his focus, his purpose was on Abner. And when Abner is removed, he finds himself depressed with no way in his physical ability to accomplish what God or what he wants to accomplish. But the servant of God is a little bit different. 
If I follow the Lord, I'll enjoy the, I'll, I will find the joy and the peace, the fulfillment that I'm looking for. So will you. You'll follow the Lord. But you have to follow God to find it. How, I, I love when I get to talk to somebody who came to Christ later in life. And they said, I tried all this stuff. I looked for happiness here. I looked for happiness there. I looked for happiness in, in stuff, in careers, in you know, relationships. I did all that. And I still found it empty. For the young people, there's something to be learned there. You can learn from the older people the mistakes that they made along the way. For kids, listen to your parents. They might have something good to tell you. They've lived through it. They have some experience with it. David said this in Psalm 27. He said, I would have lost heart. I would have lost heart unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David lived a life where he was on the run for 14 years from King Saul. He was trying to, Saul was trying to kill him. He says, I would have lost heart. And it would appear that he even did at one point when he moved over to the Philistine territory. But he said, I would have lost heart except for unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord, not upon my death, but in the land of the living. You see, David said, I didn't lose heart because my focus was on God, not on what man could do for me. Not on what man could bring for me. Not on what man, how man could promote me. Not on a relationship or a career or a success. My focus was on what God called me to do. I would have lost heart unless I believed that I could see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he goes on to say this. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. You see, this is an important thing for us to learn. And I want to just put this as blatantly or as bluntly as I can. If you've lost heart, or tonight if you're sitting there, if you've lost heart, I want you to consider the fact that you might be serving yourself rather than God. If I lose heart in something, I become down about something, I become depressed about something, I become, because things aren't going the way that I want them to go, right? Things aren't doing, you know, people aren't doing what I want them to do. My friends that I call them, maybe, maybe they don't call me anymore. Now I'm mad at them. I've lost heart in that relationship. Why? Because they're not doing what I want them. I think they should be doing. Can I encourage you that your focus needs to be on God? Your, your, your focus needs to be on the Lord. Listen, if you've lost heart, you're, you could be serving yourself and not God. If you find yourself not fulfilled in what you're doing, whether it be your career or whatever it is, there's a good chance or a good possibility you might be that servant of man and not the servant of God. If I'm doing what I'm doing because God's called me to do it, I'm going to find fulfillment in it regardless of what's happening around me. But if I'm unhappy with my career, if I'm unhappy with my boss, if I'm unhappy, if I'm, if I'm one of those people that's just unhappy with everything's going on, I'm not fulfilled, I'm not doing this, I have to question, who are you serving? Are you serving yourself? Because you've set these goals and you think that you'll find the joy that you're looking for when you accomplish that thing that you've laid out in front of you. If I could just do this one more thing, then I would find happiness. When you get there, you won't find it. But you see, as a servant of God, I can sit back and go, well, I'm just serving God. I can be a plumber. I can be a plumber and be a disgruntled, miserable employee, Right? I can, be, I can be a good plumber and be a disgruntled, miserable. I can be miserable and cranky, and everybody that comes around me knows I'm miserable, doesn't even want to talk to me. Or I can be a plumber, you know the difference? It's serving God, and I'm joyful. I'm happy. People want to talk to me because my heart is to serve God, not to serve the people. 
I'm not looking to my boss to raise me up. I'm not looking to the people or the customers to raise me up. I'm looking to the Lord and I do things unto the Lord as the Lord would call me to do. I'm being, I'm faithfully serving him. A servant of God versus a servant of man. Don't, don't be people who are looking to someone else to prop you up, to put you in a position where you can be used, where you, where you think you're going to find, you know, happiness or that joy in your life. You're not going to find it because you got promoted at work. Temporarily you will. We're all going to be happy when we get promoted at work, but then what goes with the promotion? All the trouble that goes along with it, right? All the people you got to supervise now, and people bring problems, don't they? Or what happens, like I talked about the new car or the thing that you get, now I finally got it, I'm going to be happy. You won't. You won't. You might be, you could be, you might be looking at a person to give you that happiness. What about in a relationship? What about in a marriage? Husband, wife. Oh, if my husband or my wife would only act a certain way. Oh, if they would only change this about it. Oh, if they would only do this. Oh, if, they, if, if she would only, do, or he would only do this one thing, then our marriage would be so much better. It wouldn't be. Because the moment that one thing happens, there'd be something else that you found wrong with it. Because you're looking for your happiness in a person that's trying to hold that relationship up. Our happiness has to come from God. Our joy, our peace, it has to come from God. And and happiness is is one of those words I'm kind of torn on because we're not here to be happy. But certainly I mean joy. We we, we are here and we we can have joy in what we're doing. I can be doing things for God. I can be in ministry and be miserable. I can be serving the Lord and doing things and my motives can be impure. And I can be drawn to things. and you know, I want everyone to look at me. I'm in ministry. And my motives, are, they're, if they're impure, I'm going to be a miserable person. I have to be who I am in ministry for the Lord. Just like when you, you know, if, you, if, if I was to put a burden on you guys, I said, all right, you know, guys, evangelism is part of the Bible. So I, th- I really think we need to evangelize. So after church tonight, I'm, I split up the neighborhood, and I'm going to give you all 10 houses, and I want you to go knock on the doors, and I want you to share Christ with all, all 10 houses. Some of you guys are like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. That's, that's me. I'm an evangelist. Other guys are like, I don't want to do that. I I must be a bad Christian. I don't want to do that. And I I play this burden on you and you you begin to do something because I've told you to do it and you're looking to serve me and to to please me on it. That's not the right way to do it. We have to be people who look to God and say, God, what do you want me to do? For those that have the evangelistic heart to go knock on doors, man, go, let's go, let's do it. For those that are quiet and shy that go, that's just not me. Listen, our personality doesn't change when we become Christians. If we were quiet and shy before we got saved, we're going to be quiet and shy after we got saved. If we were loud and boisterous before, we're going to be loud and boisterous after. It's just, it's who God made us to be for a specific purpose. But in our story here, in our message tonight, servant of God versus a servant of man. We find a man, Ishbosheth, who has become so depressed, so, so uh, lo- he's lost heart. All of Israel is troubled because their focus is on a man. It's on a man. Their focus is on Abner can prop me up. Abner can hold me up. I can get what I want with Abner. Listen, it won't happen. It's not going to happen with him, and it's not going to happen with you. So these two guys go in. They kill Ishbosheth. They bring his head to David, and we talked about their purpose is selfish. They're trying to save their own hide. They're trying to get themselves a new career with a new king in town. They're trying to cover their backs. We don't want to get, we don't want to get, uh, we don't want to get killed here. That's what they're doing. But look at verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Barathite, 
and said to them, this is what David says to them. You can just picture these guys coming in. You know, you picture them coming into the palace. You picture them, they've got, they've got the head in their hand and a bag or however they carried it. They're coming in all proud of themselves. What happened? Well, we snuck in. We pretended like we were getting wheat. We came in after him and we just killed him. And here's his head and we, we did this for you. And now David, the, David's about to respond to him. And this is what he said. Last half of verse 9. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Notice what he says. Because they came in, into, into, into David in verse 8, and they said, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And look what they said, And the Lord has avenged my Lord. The Lord has give, done this for you, David, the king of the day, of this day, the Saul and his descendants. The Lord has done this, is what they're saying. And David says, Hold on a second. He said, You, you, you aren't the ones that are saving my life. You're acting like you're doing me a favor. You're acting like you've done something great for me. And he says, I want you to know something. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity? David says, God is the one who's redeemed my life, not you. I'm not, I'm not here because you killed Ishbosheth. I'm here because God has redeemed my life. Notice what, he, notice what he's redeemed from. All adversity. All adversity. I'm not worried about adversity, David says. I'm not worried about Ishbosheth. I don't have to worry about those things. Those are God's problem. Those are things that God has to worry about. Do you know that as Christians we spend too much time worrying about things that are God's problems? We do. We worry about all kinds of stupid little things. Things that, we, that, that make no sense. That we spend hours worrying and it doesn't really make a difference because you have no control over it whatsoever. I wonder if this is going to happen. I wonder if that's going to happen. I wonder what's going to take place here. And what if this happens? And what if that happens? And we, can, we can drive ourselves nuts. Let it be God's problem. Let, take your faith, put it on the Lord, and say, Lord, whatever you want to do, do. David says, I'm, I'm, my, my life is redeemed from adversity. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about it. And look what he says in verse 10. When someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed to Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. David says to him, hold on a second, buddy. There was a guy that came before you. Remember? Back in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And he thought that he was bringing me good news that Saul was my enemy, that Saul was dead. He goes, I arrested him back in Ziglag. I arrested him. He thought he was bringing me good news. And he, I executed him. I executed him. Why? Because he had laid his hand on God's anointed. David wasn't trying to take Saul out. David wasn't trying to promote himself to be king. David was simply serving and doing what God had called him to do. And this, this young man who in chapter 1 had come against Saul, told David that he had cut off his head and brought his crown to him. He had him executed for it. He said, so look what he says. Someone told me saying, Saul, look, Saul is dead. I thinking to have brought good news. I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag. The one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. He thought he was doing me a favor. And he says in verse 11 to these two guys standing before him, he says, how much more when wicked men, that's you two, he's saying, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore, shall I not now require this blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? What a wise man David is. He says, how much more? He goes, when there was a man that brought me news that Saul was dead and expecting reward, I had him killed because he was celebrating Saul's death. Now you come in. You've, you've killed Saul's son, who was king of Israel. You killed him on his own bed. You're wicked men. He goes, if I was killing him before, why should I? And this is a question that he asks them. He says to him, 
Therefore shall I not now require this require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth. He goes, shouldn't I just kill you? I wonder what they said. You know, they don't tell us what, he, what, they, don't tell us what, what they said afterwards. But here's these two guys thinking they're, they're going to do themselves a favor. They think they're going to they're play it off like they're doing David a favor. David, hey Dave, we did you a favor. We killed him for you. Now make us in, make us in charge in your army. And he goes, you just killed. Now Ishbosheth wasn't set up like Saul, by God, like Saul was, was set up as king. But he was still part of Saul's family. You know, the, the problem is this. The problem is, is that they underestimated David's, David's uh, loyalty to God. And they underestimated David's previous oath to God, or to Saul, rather. Remember back when, when Saul tried to kill David, when Saul came in the second time, David had a chance to kill Saul, and Saul said to David, would you please not cut off my descendants after me? And David said, You're, I, won't, I won't cut your descendants off after you. And uh, they forgot about that. They, they didn't realize that, that David was going to be a man of his word. So what does David do to him? Look, it says in verse 12, So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. It's one of those verses that you just scratch your head and go, Do we really need all that information? Can they just say they killed him? Well, no, that was, it was, it was, it was, it, David wanted to make a purpose. He wanted to make a point to him. He wanted everyone to know, wait a minute, I'm not the one doing this. I am not the one who's taken Saul out. I'm not the one who's taken Ishbosheth out. I'm not the one who's taken Abner out. I'm not the one who's promoting myself in this. And he wanted to be very, very clear that he wasn't going to tolerate other people doing it either. But what message did he send to everybody else who was now jockeying for position in David's army? That's not the way to get it. You see, they, mis- they misunderstood that they thought Saul and Ishbosheth were David's enemies, when in fact David didn't see them as enemies at all. David, David was the person who said, oh, I have no adversity. I don't have to worry about it. God's the one that's, God's the one that's going to do it. And look at, we're going to look at the first few verses in chapter 5. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel... All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your, we are your bone and your flesh." Also, in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out of out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel, be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Wow, finally. David was, well, let me just read the next two verses. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. In Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So we come to a point in Scripture where David has been doing what's right before the Lord. And 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verses 23 through 40, tell us when the leaders of the tribes came, they brought their militaries with them. They brought thousands and thousands of men with them, and they presented themselves to David to be king. And here's what, I, here's what I find interesting. Why they turn to David? Why? why? I mean, there, there's a couple things they point out in there that I think are really important. There's a couple things that they draw. The tribes came to David. David did not promote himself as king. He didn't establish himself as king. Judah came to him to be king over them. And now the other tribes are coming to him with all of their armies, all of their military. And they're saying, here we are. We want you to be king. But I have to say... That was only after things with Ishbosheth didn't work out, right? First, we want Ishbosheth to be king. 
But that didn't work out. So now we want David to be king. It's the same thing with Jesus. How often do we come to Jesus when he's the last resort in our life? When other things don't work out, we'll try this and we'll try that. and We'll, we'll go here and we'll go there and we'll work this and we'll work that. We're going to try Ishbosheth because he's a son of Saul, but that didn't work out. And they turned to Jesus. David, here they're turning to David. We do the same thing with Jesus. We've tried everything else. But on a practical level, why'd they pick David? Why are they, why are they coming behind David? Well, we know that David was anointed king over Israel. So we knew that someday he would be king because God's word is true. But his journey to the throne has been 15 years. 15 years. 15 years. You think, well, he must have been in king. He went to king college for 15 years, learned how to be king. He was in training to be a king. Oh, he was in training to be a king, all right. But I don't think anybody that's been here with our study of him through 1 Samuel, would you like that kind of training? Do you want to live in the desert for 14 of those years? Do you want a group of uh, outcasts to be the men that you have that, that are coming alongside of you? Do you want to be running for your life all the time? Having an attempt, to, even having an opportunity to kill the person that's trying to kill you, but refusing to do it because he's God's anointed one? You see, his training for king was very practical. As he was in Engedi and writing the Psalms and, and remembering those things, it's when he was becoming a man after God's own heart. But they give us some very, very practical things here. They mention David. They mention his previous display of leadership. Before Saul was trying to kill him, back when he slayed Goliath, back when he was fighting the Philistines, back when you know, the song was, was, was being sung by the ladies that you know, Saul had slain his thousands, David had slain his tens of thousands, they said, they said in his, look at verse 2, his previous display of leadership, also in time past. That means before, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in, and the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruled over them. They also recognize, I believe, David's character. The fact that he didn't kill Saul when he had a chance. The fact that he honored Saul and Jonathan after their death. The fact that he honored Abner after his death. The fact that he's not allowing these two to get away with killing Ishbosheth. I think they see his character involved in this. He's not being sold to the highest bidder. He's simply following God. As a result of him following God, God is elevating him to the position of king over all Israel, just like he said he would. You see, the cool thing about him becoming king is he didn't have to do it by himself. Sometimes God will call us to do something in our lives, and we think we need to make it happen. It needs to be our will, our way. We can, it needs to be our energy, our strength. That's not the way it works with God. Be patient. What did he say? Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Renew your strength in him. Let him be the one that does it. But they also mentioned something else. They saw the Lord's anointing in his life. They recognized that God had called him. Look at the last half of verse 2. The Lord And the Lord said to you, and he's referring to David, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over them. So if they knew that, why would they ever put Ishbosheth in office? That's what Abner wanted. That's what they were following the man. So they recognize his leadership. They recognize his character. They see his anointing in his life. Now that's an important lesson for us. And I wrote this down. The leader who places himself over you is not necessarily a leader ordained by God. The one who physically puts himself over you. Look for the leader in whose life God is at work. Find the leader who's, who, God, who God's working through. Find the leader, find the pastor, find the church where God's doing something through the, through the life of the man there. And place yourself underneath of him, willingly. Do you see that type of leadership? Do you see that model of leadership? How it works much better that way? Just recognize where God's doing something and get behind it. 
It works that way. Just, just find out what God's doing and get behind it. Willingly place that person that God's using in, in your life or over you and come underneath of them without them having to come on, on top of you with a firm fist or a firm authority. Just recognize what God's already doing. Recognize where he's working and get behind it. Don't find the man that's a great leader or a great speaker. Find the man that God's using. Find the people that God's using. Find the things that God's using. You know, it was told me a long time ago when it came to running a church and, you know, building a church and all that kind of stuff. Let God do the work. But the best place for me to find people for ministry do you know where I look the best? You know where I can, I can always find? I want to get people that, that, that want to be raised up in ministry, that want to serve, that want to do things. you know where I find them? In the prayer meeting on Sunday night. The ones that will say they can get down on their knees and they're going to go to the Lord. They don't have to have, I might have somebody that has got a ton of experience over here doing tons of things, but I want the guy or the lady that will get down on their knees and say, Lord, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm willing to be led by you. I have no idea what, how, how, you know, I know you've called me, but I don't, I don't have any idea. Because I know that if they're willing to pray on Sunday night or whatever night the church meets for prayer, I know they're willing to get down on their knees and pray that I can trust them to do something in ministry for the church. I can trust them because they're, they're, they're going, when things get rough, they're going to go to their knees and they're going to ask God what to do. Far, far greater than me. My, my, my counsel is only going to be you know, worldly counsel to, to my opinions, my logic, my, my experience. But God's counsel. God's counsel, you know, we, 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 get, we get the blessing of watching God work with our radio station. We've seen that happen a number of times. We, you know, none of us knew anything about radio, and we, we just served the Lord, and how do we do it, Lord? Many times we've got down on our knees and said, God, what do we do next? We don't even know how to, how to plug the thing in. We've got all the equipment here. What do we do? And he starts to show us. He sends people alongside of us and, uh, to, to make it all happen. It's an amazing thing when God does it. It's an amazing thing. The cool thing is, when you do it that way, when you serve that way, you get to be used in ways that you didn't ever think were possible. I think it's funny now people say, oh, you have a radio voice. Nobody ever told me that before I was on the radio. Nobody ever came up and said, you know, you sound like you should be on the radio. Nobody ever said that at all, you know. But now that I'm on the radio, people say, oh, you have a radio voice. That's only because I'm on the radio. If I wasn't on the radio, you would have never said I have a radio voice. But it's kind of ironic how that works. Because I never thought that I would be on the radio. I never thought that that was something I wanted to do. It was not something I had in plan. It was something God put in the heart of us to do that here in our church and to watch what happens. So what we see taking place here in chapter 4 and in the beginning of chapter 5, and we'll kind of close with this thought, David has finally become king over all of Israel. Quick review, just five seconds, five minutes, no, I won't even five minutes, just a quick review. Israel comes out of Egypt. They wander in the desert for 40 years. They finally cross over the Jordan. They go into the land of Canaan. They're supposed to drive out the Canaanites, and what do they do? They drive out some of them. And then they begin to intermix. They begin to intermarry. They begin to allow the Canaanite gods to creep into their culture. And they get far away from God. And they get farther and farther, and they drift away from God. And they come to God. They come to their prophet Samuel. They say, Samuel, we want a king. Why do you want a king? Because everybody else has a king. All, everybody else, all the other settlements around us have kings. We want a king, too. Samuel says, you don't need a king, you've got God. Your name Israel means governed by God. Be people that are led by God. No, we want a king like everybody else. So Samuel goes to God and says, God, they want a king. What do I do? And God says, give them a king. Give them a king. If they want a king, give them a king. All right, well, we want a king. Well, give them Saul. Saul's, the, Saul's a king for the people. Head and shoulders above the rest. He looked like a king. What a great king. He was, he was going to be a battle man. He was taller than everybody. He was going to lead, lead them. That was the king the people picked. And what happened? He was a failure. He started out good, but pretty soon he was following his own heart, his own desires, not following God's desires. 
And now the people find themselves in trouble again because they're being pressed in by the Philistines. They're being crushed by the Philistines. And when life gets hard, what do you do? You pray. God, would you help us? I'll never do that again. Please just get me out of this one more time. And God says, I'm in the process of raising up a king. And we see King David, who is known as a man after God's own heart, taking the helm of Israel, if you will. A man who will seek God's heart and be led by God. What a blessing it is. He's the best king, the most godly king Israel has ever had to this day, with the exception of Jesus Christ, of course. And they don't recognize him as king yet. They will someday. But here's David. He's finally taken the throne of Israel. It's been 15 years How long will you wait for what God's put on your heart to do in your life? How long are you willing to wait? Will you wait for a year? Will you pursue it and prepare? Will you endure the preparation for what God's called you to do? David's preparation was in the wilderness. David's preparation was hard. David's preparation was difficult. But it's all going to begin to pay off as now he finally gets to be used in the way that God's called him to be used. And if you know the story, he's not perfect. There's a lot more he's going to go through, isn't it? But then again, we're not perfect either, are we? And while we're not going to be called to be kings, here's what we need to remember. God created us for a specific purpose. You have a purpose in your life. Whether it, whatever it is, how, no matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, God has a purpose and a plan and he wants to use you. And everything you go through is preparing you for the next thing. It's all part of his plan. It's all part of the process. It's all part of the, the deal. Now, before we close, one more thing. If, if, and when, because it's more of a when, we find ourselves losing heart when we've lost heart, how do we stop? How do we, how do we, how do we get back? How do we end up taking it back full circle to where we then have hope? You see, if my hope is in mankind or my hope is in my circumstance or my hope is in my health, I will come and I will always lose heart because it will always fail me. My hope has to be in God. The way that we come back from that is real simple. Worship, prayer, and Bible study. If I begin to worship and I begin to pray and I begin to study my Bible and realize who God is, it will put things in the proper perspective for me. Because we will all find places when we lose hope, hope, won't we? We've all been there. We all know what it's like to not want to get out of bed that day because there's just no hope on what the day brings. But I need to find my hope in the Lord. If my hope is in the Lord, he will give me the desires of my heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart and he will provide desires for you that you didn't even know you desired because he created you and he knows what will fulfill you and fulfilling you will be you fulfilling his call in your life no matter what that is. And when I say call, please don't think I'm talking about being a pastor or a missionary to the Amazon or something like that. Sometimes we're called to be moms. Sometimes we're called to be dads. We're called to be plumbers. We're called to be whatever, whatever jobs we have. Those things are real simple. That can be my calling in life. That's what God's called me to do. Will I do it unto man or will I do it unto God? That's the question that we have to answer. Are we a servant of man? Are we looking to man for our joy and our peace, our, our to prop us up, or are we looking to God like David says, I'm not worried about what happens around me. I could just walk through this life no matter what happens. It doesn't really matter to me. I'm not going to get upset about the elections coming up in November. It doesn't really matter. I mean, does it really matter who gets elected in God's economy? No. Does it mean that, does it matter for our country? Sure it does, but don't we already know it's going to get bad? I mean, the Bible tells us how bad it's going to get. We shouldn't be like, I can't believe it's going to, we're waiting for the last Trump, right? The last Trump of God. Maybe this is it. Who knows? It doesn't really matter if, we're, if our focus and our hope is on God. It doesn't matter how bad our economy gets or how bad our country gets. It doesn't make a difference. 
because our hope doesn't lie there. As followers of Christ, we're servants of God, and we will simply wait for the next order that God gives us. Amen?